Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We'll continue our, uh, our look at uh, Satan. But not just Satan. We'll look, at it, we'll look at the Lord today and how you responded to him. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this blessed time. We thank you for this place where we can meet. And we pray now that our hearts would be laid bare before you. We pray that your spirit would also now be working and moving among us. Lord, teaching us your ways. Imparting your grace to us, Father, because we need it so much. And Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us your understanding and your wisdom. Lord, that we might understand your truth. And more importantly, that we would live that truth. That we might be the people that you would have us to be. Father, that we might be the lights in this world. To share this light that you have given us. That we might bring light to the darkness. Because there is much of it. So we commit this time to you now. I pray that I would speak your words with boldness and with truth and love. And I pray that you bless each and every person here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many promises have you made in your life? Have you lost count like me? I, I know from when I was young how many promises I would have made. We tend to make a lot of promises. I think after you get saved, you make a lot less promises. Because James says we, it's pointless for us to say tomorrow we're going to be here or the next day we're going to be there because we, we can't even control today what's going on. As the Lord Jesus says, even with worry, can, you can't even change the colour of one hair on your head. We tend to still worry though, don't we? It's a part of the flesh that we try to control. But promises are things that we understand oftentimes, and you learn as you mature, that there are sometimes things out of your control. And so as a Christian, I make uh, very few promises, very seldom. Actually, I try not to make any promises at all, because the Bible says, swear not. Don't make any oaths. That's why if we find ourselves in the court of law, I probably won't be putting my hand in the Bible and swearing on that, that's for sure. Because I can't control elements in my life but there is one who can control every element there is one who when he makes a promise is able to see every circumstance and last week we looked at a promise that was made all the way back in a garden that God planted a place called Eden where two newly created beings fell and God made a promise and he said that he would send a seed of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. 
and that there would always be enmity between those two and between the woman and the seed of the serpent itself. So I want to re-look at that promise this morning as we start and continue our series on Satan. And this essentially is a two-part sermon because there's too much information for me to give you all in one go. You're going to find some of the stuff today different. Um, Maybe you've never heard some of this stuff before. But I hope you're blessed by it. Turn with me. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. As we remind ourselves of what happened there and what God did as a result. Genesis chapter 3 verse 14. We look specifically at the curse that God put on the serpent for deceiving Eve and causing Adam to fall as well. And in Genesis chapter 3 verse 14 it says, and the, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. God judged the serpent for being used by Satan as a tool in his scheme. And he would, he would pay for it forever by being changed in, from his original design. The snake as we know it today, which hasn't changed from that time, would be an eternal reminder to man and to Satan of the curse that God had put on the devil, that he would travel on his belly and that he would eat dust as a constant reminder that of the height that he had fallen from. You see, he came from heaven. He was a created cherub. One of the most glorious of all of God's creatures. And God says, now you are reduced to to slithering on your belly. And then God says in verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. God said that he would put hatred between the serpent and the woman, and also hatred between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we concluded last week that the identity of the woman could not have been Eve. Because scriptures such as Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, and point to something else, where Isaiah tells us, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, that prophecy was also a reiteration of that first promise. That of a seed of a woman. Now, seed of a woman means there's no seed of man. And specifically, the seed of the woman would be a man who would be born of a virgin. So it couldn't have been Eve. The enmity that was spoken of between the woman and and the serpent could not have just been Eve. It had to be something else. And we see that a virgin conceiving was a direct fulfillment of this phrase the seed of the woman and we looked at scripture and scripture clearly told us that this seed of the woman and this one who was going to be born of a virgin which was a seed of a woman was Jesus himself who was the fulfillment of a promise made back in the garden of Eden some 4,000 years before In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he tells us, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his, his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus was that seed that the promise was spoken of. He was the one who would defeat and crush the head of the serpent or the devil. And while the devil would figuratively bruise his heel, he would crush his head. This was the seed who would win back the earth and the dominion of it. This was the one who would win back what was rightfully his. This would be the man who would defeat Satan, whereas our original parents succumbed to his tactics. That's why scripture says in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We believe that scripture. God fulfills all his promises. Jesus will one day sit upon the throne of his father or the one who he, who he descended, who he came down from. He will, sit, he will sit on that throne one day. Jesus was the one who will be the rightful ruler of this world and he is that now. A rule that he would win back from Satan. But the question then we then had, had for ourselves or we then had to ask is if Jesus was the seed of the woman, who was the woman? Was it Mary? Was it Mary that he was talking about that would be at constant enmity between her and the devil? Was it Eve? What happened to Eve? Well, Mary was a virgin and she did conceive Christ by the power of the Holy Ghost. But she too could not be the fulfillment of the woman spoken in Genesis. She may have been the actual woman who gave birth to the Lord, but she could not have been the one who would have this constant enmity between her and the devil. So I proposed last week a third alternative, and some of you got confused completely because I said there was a third woman floating around here. So some of you went looking through your Bibles to find that woman. Who was this woman who was responsible for the birth of Christ that had through the ages been at war with Satan? And I told you that the, the indication of this came in two genealogies that find themselves the beginning of Matthew and the beginning of Luke. Those two genealogies give us the identity of the woman. Two distinct lines, two distinct paths, yet interwoven together, leading all the way back to Eve. Through Mary, this line is the woman at enmity with the devil throughout the ages. This line is a line that was inhabited by Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This line went through that line of King David. From whom both Joseph and Mary were descended. You see, Jesus was not only the rightful king. 
because he was a descendant of um, King David through the line of Joseph, but he was also a descendant of King David through the line of Mary. Both lines meant that he was the rightful king of Israel. I then explained to you that this line, through whom the Messiah would be born, that original promise that was made, that seed who would crush the serpent's head, would be the most critical component of God's plan of redemption because God had to preserve this line for at least 4,000 years. And the Bible gives us about 75 generations that God had to make sure did not turn away from him. It was God's responsibility. He promised it. He had to deliver it. And he did. He preserved a line of people who would be faithful to him from Adam all the way to Mary, Jesus' mother. And if they turned away, if that line became corrupted, then the Messiah could not be born and God's plan would have been thwarted. But God was able to keep his promise. God was able to see every circumstance and every possible decision that would be made and choice that would be made and and tactic that the devil would use all along those years to try to pull his people away completely from him. And God was able to counteract every move, even to the point where there was one family left in the entire world that had stayed faithful to God, and that was Noah and his family. And God knew that if he didn't protect that family, that Satan would do everything in his power, either to corrupt it or to kill it. So God destroyed a whole world for it. God destroyed a whole world to protect that family and to preserve that line. And this line is most in its most clearest form, is described as spiritual Israel. Now, we know that not all of Israel is Israel, as the Bible teaches, but there has always been a faithful few within that entity, let's call it, who were God's chosen people. You see, it was this entity that gave us the prophets, all the prophets in the Old Testament. It was this entity that gave us all the writers in the Bible. They were all Jewish. It was this entity that had the responsibility of not only recording the word, the very words of God given to it, but preserving and protecting that word to keep it. These were the people through whom God would deliver his chosen seed into this world. Is there much to be said about them? There is much to be said about them. But did they fall many times? Of course they fell many times. The Bible is a a litany of times that Israel as a nation turned away from God and came back and turned away from God and came back. But in the midst of all that, the Bible says that there were always, always the faithful ones in there that preserved that relationship with him. And in, that, in those lines we find, in those genealogies in Matthew and Luke, we find those preserved lines. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. And if you want to turn there, some of you are turning there already. So Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. 
We'll read just four verses just to reiterate this, this particular point. It says, And the angel of the Lord, Genesis twenty-two fifteen, called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. And God makes promises. And when he makes promises, he doesn't swear by anyone else. He swears by himself. Because he is the highest authority and he is the highest power anywhere. So you can't swear by anyone else higher. So he swears by himself. For because thou hast done this thing, and that was... That was willing, be willing to offer up his only son, Isaac, because God had asked for him. And has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because thou hast obeyed my voice. Because of Abraham's faithfulness, the Lord swears an oath to Abraham that his seed would be numerous and that through his seed all the the, the nations of the earth would be blessed and that he would possess the gates of his enemy. Who was the seed? Galatians tells us. Galatians 3.16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So the Bible clearly tells us that because of a promise God made to Abraham, that his seed would bless the entire earth, and that seed was Jesus. The same seed that was promised to Eve and Adam in the beginning, that he, the same seed of a woman. So we see that that's a continuation of that particular promise, just that Abraham now was invited into that particular line. And ever since Abraham, it's been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants on. It's no coincidence that this scripture here says that that seed will possess the gates of his enemy. You know why? Because Jesus says, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus would build his church when he came. And and heaven, and sorry, hell will not prevail against it. Hell will not destroy the church. But Jesus would possess the gates of his enemy, which means Jesus would have the victory over the devil. Jesus was the seed of the woman and that woman had been protected by God throughout all these generations all along the way. Turn with me to to Isaiah chapter 41 verse 8. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof. 
and said unto thee, Thou art my servant. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. When God called Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to be his servant and, and, and the line that would come through them, he made a promise to them that he would preserve them. He made that promise and he would, that he would not cast them away. And God achieved that purpose. But God also knew that Satan knew that promise as well. So Satan's position, knowing that one day that seed, if ever he was born, or whenever he was born, would crush his head, what would you do? What would be one of your main targets? Would be to try to corrupt that line and destroy that line as much as possible. Because if he could stop that child from being born, he would stop that prophecy and that promise from coming true. And Satan has done that throughout the ages. Satan knows the Bible. Unfortunately, Satan cor corrupts the Bible when he's talking to other people. You see, when Satan tried to tempt Jesus, he quoted Scripture. But he corrupted the Scripture. Satan knew very well what was coming. And he knew that one day that seed would be born and that seed would kill him. So Satan did everything in his power to corrupt and destroy that line. So man had fallen. He had died spiritually. Let's go back to man for a moment. And he would also die physically. If man had not fallen, he would have lived forever, as I mentioned to you this morning. But in the Bible, we see a gradual decline from Adam and Eve all the way down to Abraham. We see, we see lifespans changed. They didn't die straight away, but they died gradually. They lived less or smaller and shorter years of their lives. But there's an interesting threat that God saw. When God judged Adam and Eve, he sent them out of the garden. He said, you're not staying here anymore, you're out. But then he said there was a, there was a threat. As much as the threat was um, that they went to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was another threat now that God had to take care of. Because if, if he didn't take care of this particular threat, they would have been stuck forever without him. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man... And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims 
and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, what is going on there? God says that they know good and evil now. Unless they take of the tree of life and live forever, we have to get them out of this garden. By the way, when he's saying we, he's not talking about him and the angels. He's talking about him within himself. God having a conversation within himself because God is a trinity. So he says we have to remove them from the garden. But the interesting thing is that once he takes them out of the garden, what does he do? He puts cherubims. He puts a number of angels. And do you know what type of angels they are? The same type of angel as Satan. And you have to wonder, why does God need to put a number of angels at the east side of this gate, of this garden, with a flaming sword that goes in every direction, to stop man from getting back in? I don't know the answer to that, but I would suspect it's not just for man to get, stop man from getting back in. Man doesn't need a number of angels to stop him, but maybe someone else did. You see, where God, we know that the scripture says that, that Satan was the covering cherub who was anointed to cover, to protect and to serve God. And we knew that he was in the Garden of Eden. So God, once he had judged Satan, didn't want him back there either, I believe. So he had to put a number of cherubim to guard that, to guard that way. Why couldn't man live forever, though? The question then, then comes to you is, why wouldn't God just let, live, let man live forever? If God had allowed him, he would have just been able to take the fruit of the garden of, the, of that tree of life and continue to live and live and live and never die. Yet God allowed death to come into the world. Well, let me, let me ask you the question, what would have happened if man had lived forever? I think the answer is simple that man would have been in bondage forever. Man would have been under the dominion of Satan forever. Sin would have no consequence if you lived forever. Can you imagine a world where someone like a Hitler or a Stalin or a Pol Pot were allowed to live forever without death? Can you imagine the type of world that would exist where men... And the evil that they do was uncontrolled and unfettered. And they could do whatever they liked because they lived forever. Can you imagine the type of world that would exist? Well, we get a glimpse of it. Because in, in Noah's day, they lived very long times. They lived 900 years. So by the time Noah came around, these people had lived very, very long periods of time. And the Bible says that the earth was completely corrupt, that violence had filled the earth, and sin was uncontrolled, and God had to destroy it because it had become so corrupt. Maybe that's an example of what it would be like if we all were able to live forever without dying. What would you call that sort of place? I think I'd call it something like hell. This is why God this is what God was protecting man from. Man had already severed his spiritual connection to God. 
that God was not about to let man live forever and suffer the eternal consequences of separation and allow Satan to have complete mastery and dominion over him forever. Man had to die in order that one day he might be freed. And that freedom would take the death, the substitutionary death of a man who would defeat Satan and who would defeat death. So let's see how this seed of a woman defeated Satan. We know Jesus was born of a virgin. Ever wondered why? Ever wondered why Jesus had to be born of a virgin? What, what was it? Well, I believe it was because he did not inherit the sin nature that we have. You see, we are born, all of us, with a sin nature. Now, sin nature means the propensity, the desire, the inward desire to always sin. From the time we are born, we want to do things our own way. It's inbuilt in us. The Bible says that Jesus did not have this sin nature. The Bible says he was born sinless. And I believe he was born sinless because he didn't inherit that sin through the line or that, that um, character through the line of his father. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. You see, Jesus is spoken of as the last Adam. There was a first Adam, and here's the last Adam, or the second Adam. Adam was born innocent before God. Adam was not born with a sin nature. Unfortunately, we inherit the nature that they took upon themselves when they disobeyed God. And ever since then, every person has, has taken on that sin nature and we struggle with it. And do you know why we have this body has to go? Because this body can't be redeemed. God has to give us, even though we are born again, God has to get rid of this body because this body is, has a tendency to sin. This flesh that I live within now and I struggle with every day, God has to eventually get rid of it. And he has to give me a whole new body because I was born with a sin nature. But Jesus wasn't born with a sin nature. So you know something? It's most likely that if Jesus wasn't crucified on the cross and then rose again, Jesus would have lived forever. Because by sin comes death. Jesus was born with neither a sin nature and never sinned in his life. So there is no reason to assume that Jesus would ever have died. He could have lived forever just like Adam did. He was sinless. So Jesus was the second Adam, born of a virgin without a sin nature. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. I want to show you an interesting passage that speaks of something that um, maybe you haven't seen before. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 tells us, and this is speaking about Jesus here. Who in the days of his flesh, 
when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Find something interesting in that passage? I remember a conversation a number of years ago between a friend of mine who was a Christian and a Jehovah's Witness. Now, most of you would probably know that Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh or the Son of God, okay? They believe he's an angel, basically, okay? Now, remember that this Jehovah's Witnesses pulled out this verse to argue the point that Jesus was a created being. And it says, and, and, and if you look at it, it says, yet learned, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And the argument was, to my friend, that if, if he's really God, what does he have to learn? God doesn't have to learn anything, does he? Sounds a good argument, doesn't it? God doesn't have to learn anything. God knows everything. So how can God learn something? To which my friend, probably prompted by the Holy Spirit at that particular stage, is, when did God ever obey anyone? Did God ever obey anyone else throughout all of eternity? If there's something that God had to learn, it was to obey. Because the Son of God, who sat on the throne through all of eternity, never obeyed anyone else. They obeyed him. So when he was born of a virgin, when he was born a man, he had to learn to obey. Now that's more of an argument speaking of his godhood than anything else. God had to learn to obey. And he learned it through the things which he suffered. And it says he'd been made perfect. So he went through a learning process and became perfected in his knowledge of obedience. God, Jesus was perfect. We know that. He was perfect and he became the perfect sacrifice for all of mankind. So as a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus was led to a wooden cross where he would be nailed. And on that cross, he would be the ransom for the whole world and would satisfy the justice of God so that we don't have to receive that justice. And Satan did everything he could to make sure that Jesus sinned and he failed. Satan did everything he could in his power to make sure that he was rejected by his own people and killed. He inspired the religious leaders of Jesus' day to see Jesus as a threat to their dominion over the people that they controlled. And he led them to formulate a plan to kill him, to get him out of the way. You see, Satan knew that this one, Satan knew that this was the seed. He knew that when Jesus was born, this was the one. Because he also inspired Herod to go and kill all the children in Bethlehem. So he inspired the people of Jesus' day, the religious leaders, to seek to kill Jesus. And so they took advantage of one of the world's most evil ways of killing someone which we call crucifixion. 
and they used the ones who were their conquerors to carry out their wicked plans so they, they wouldn't soil their own hands with it. But neither they nor Satan understood what they were doing. They thought that by killing Jesus, they would be rid of him. Satan, no doubt, realised who Jesus was, that he was the seed, and that he would make sure that he didn't just bruise his heel. He would make sure that he killed him completely. So Jesus was first beaten. Then he was whipped with a type of whip that tore the flesh from his back and his front. He was then made to carry a heavy wooden beam up a hill. He was nailed to that beam in the sight of all the world to see and all the heavens to see. He was then lifted up. And just when Jesus gave up his spirit and cried his last words, the devil made sure that he was dead by putting a spear into his heart. The job was done, wasn't it? He didn't just bruise his heel. He made sure that he was completely drained of all the blood that he had within him. Satan thought that he'd beaten God and the curse that was upon him. So Jesus is in a tomb for three days. At least his body was. But where was he? Have you ever asked yourself, where was Jesus in those, during those three days? His body was in a tomb. But where was his soul? Where was the Son of God during those three days? Could he have gone up to heaven during those three days? And just waited up there until the three days were up and then he went back down again. Well, Luke 23.42 might give us an indication. Luke 23.42, if you want to turn with me there. Refers to the... One of the thieves that was being crucified with Jesus and the conversation that he has with them. And this particular thief, who at one particular stage was, was an, a non-believer, has a turn. While he's dying, while he's being hung on a cross, he has a turn. Or, 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 something happens within him. And he says to Jesus in verse 42, Lord, remember me. And he calls him Lord, which means he's put his faith in him. Even while he's, he's dying next to him on a cross, he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Okay. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Okay. You're going to be with me in paradise today. So Jesus went to heaven with him. What do you think? What's, why would Jesus not say heaven? Why would Jesus use a word, paradise, it's only used two other times in the whole of the New Testament? Turn with me to John, turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 verse 15. Now, Jesus had risen from the grave at this point, okay? He'd been in the tomb for three days, and the first one to see him was 
Mary. Mary Magdalene was the first one to see him. And in verse 15 it says, Jesus saith unto her woman, Why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, you see, his body was missing. If thou have taken him away, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus, Jesus saith unto her, Mary, She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Jesus had not yet ascended to his Father. He had risen from the grave, but you understand the ascension of Christ that we speak about is something else. It's not the same as a resurrection. The resurrection is Jesus rising from the grave. The ascension is when he stood on that Mount of Olives and he looked at his disciples and said, I'm going up to be with my father. And the same way you see me going up, the angel said, he's coming back down. And he rose up to be with his father forevermore. The ascension of Christ is different from the resurrection of Christ. And Mary had seen the resurrected Jesus. Not the glorified or ascended Jesus. So he hadn't been to heaven yet. He hadn't gone. Because he said, I haven't ascended to my father yet. But tell, go and tell my brethren, I will be ascending. So where was Jesus for three days? And what does it have to do with the devil? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Now it says there, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, okay, we have the word ascended, okay, so it's not the resurrection, it's the ascension. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now look at these next, next two verses, which are in brackets. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul argues here that Jesus ascended into heaven, but he first descended down into the lower parts of the earth. Now, one of my favourite movies growing up was Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I don't know if you have any of you have seen that one, but I just love that movie. Did Jesus go on some expedition down to the, to the lower parts of the earth? No. There is no record of Jesus having gone any expedition with his disciples. Did he go do some deep cavern expedition? No, he didn't. So what are the lower parts of the earth where Jesus descended to? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 29, and the apostle Peter may give us some light on that. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Jesus is, uh, sorry, Peter is making a, a wonderful sermon here. And he says, Men and brethren, in verse 29, let me speak freely, let me speak, sorry, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David held on to a promise of God that through his line, God would raise the king that would sit on his throne. And David held on to that. But look at verse 31. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in, what does your Bible say? Hell. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all, all sorry, we all are witnesses. Peter says that the prophecy that, gave, that David gave in the Psalms about Jesus was that he would not leave him in hell. Now, in order for that verse to make sense, in order for that 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 construction to make any sense at all you know where Jesus had to have been in hell hell but that God would not leave him there now there are other scripture passages to support this and we haven't got the time to go through them all but the question I've got is what was he doing there what was he doing there now, I, there are some there are some well, I'll call them brethren okay who believed that Jesus was in agony there, paying for our sins. I don't really subscribe to that. Because the sins that he paid for were paid on the cross. They weren't paid in hell. So what was Jesus doing in hell? Let's say for three days. Well, turn with me to First Peter. Let's see what Peter now says about what Jesus was, was actually doing there in hell. So Peter gives a sermon. He says his soul was not left in hell. Nor would his body see corruption. Now, First Peter chapter three verse eighteen tells us what he might be doing there. First Peter chapter three verse eighteen: For Christ also has has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. But quickened, that means being made alive by the Spirit. Capital S, which means he was made alive by the Holy Spirit. Okay, By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. Now what is going on with that? Okay, so God allows Jesus to suffer for the sins of the world um, and he's made alive by the Spirit. By the, by the same Spirit, he actually goes and preaches to the spirits that are in prison who were disobedient at one particular time when the ark was being prepared. What does one have to do with the other? This is... This is the only place in the Bible that speaks of spirits being in prison. Okay? What prison? 
What spirits is he talking about? Well, it describes spirits here. Ones in particular that were associated with a time of disobedience during the days of Noah, specifically at a time while he was preparing the ark. How long did it take him to prepare the ark? About 120 years, right? During that 120 years, while Noah's building an ark, there's a lot of stuff going on. And somehow, they're associated. These spirits in prison are associated with this particular time frame, or this particular period of time. What makes this time frame any period? Well, do you remember? Only a few moments ago, I actually said to you about a great promise that God had made for a child who would be born of a virgin who would defeat Satan. You know that, don't you? Okay. So Satan knew that he had to try and break this particular genealogy. He had to break this particular line of faith. So with the aid of a third of the angels of heaven who fell with him to the earth, Satan did his utmost to try and destroy and corrupt every possible human being on the planet so this being or this baby could not be born. If they could... They would stop God's plan. They would destroy this promise that God had made. So we find some interesting words in Genesis. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Now for those of you who are thinking I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 6 verse 1, you got it wrong. That is another, another almost another sermon for another day. So we're going to read from verse 5. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination and of the thoughts of his heart were, con- were only evil continually. And it repented of the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls uh, of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But, uh, that but is the the most important part of this whole passage, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, except Noah and his family. We find in Noah's day the world almost completely corrupted by Satan and his legion of demons. I would imagine at that particular time where you have people who were unfettered in their imaginations for evil, that there would have been a great deal of demonic activity. There would have been a great deal of demonic possession. Every imagination was continuous. Violence, the Bible says, he absolutely filled the earth. And Noah preached for 120 years. How many converts did he get? Zero. And oftentimes we look at that and we say, 
how can you preach for 120 years and not get one convert? Noah, what are you doing? You need some better ways to attract people. Maybe your sermons aren't really, uh, you know, they're not cutting it. Some drums and maybe a few electric guitars might, might have done well. But, sorry. But Noah didn't make one convert. In 120 years of preaching, the Bible says that he walked with God and he preached consistently. Not one convert? What does it tell you about the state of the world? Not one convert. Noah was perfect in his generations. And Noah would be the generation through whom the Messiah God had chosen would, would be born. His line had not become corrupted by Satan. Neither he nor his family were corrupted. Noah and God decided and chose to protect Noah. Because he knew, as I've mentioned this morning, that Satan would do everything in his power to focus and bear in on that, on that man and his family. You ever wondered why God had to kill an entire world? It wasn't just because the world was evil. Because God at the same time was protecting, was protecting a family. God had chosen to cleanse the world and begin the line and continue the line, I should say, through Noah. But I also believe this, that along with destroying many souls, God also delivered many of the angels, many of those fallen angels, into hell because they had crossed a particular line. They had possessed men. The reason man had become so devilish is because the devils had their way with them. The devils who had fallen from heaven were running amok. They possessed men. They'd entered into things and done things with men that they should never have done. They were so evil and dangerous that God chose to incarcerate them immediately rather than let them continue to, to go around or to roam the earth. So he chose a number of them who had crossed a particular line in God's eyes and he cast them into hell. Not all of them, but some of them, some of the absolute worst of them, the ones that were able to completely corrupt the world with violence and sin. And as I mentioned before, I've specifically chosen not to read verses 1 to 4 this morning because that is a plethora. That can open up a plethora of different things and, uh, and, and reasons, okay? But to conclude this point, please turn to Peter again because Peter now gives us more information about this. Second Peter chapter 2, we're about to close up. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Second Peter, chapter two, verse four. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now notice once again, he links, he links 
the sparing of angels, that God did not spare angels of sin, and he puts right next to it that he saved Noah and his family. Jude also tells us in Jude 1.6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, he cast out demons from people, did he not? So there are still demons floating around the earth doing what they will and they affect people. But if you have time, read Luke chapter 8 and read the account where Jesus came to the Gadarenes and met a man who was running around naked amongst the tombs. And the Bible says that this man had a legion of demons inside him. And it's interesting the conversation that takes place between Jesus and, and that man or the legion that is within him. And the legion says, and the demons that are inside that man say, they plead with Jesus because they know he's the son of God and they say, cast us not into the deep. Don't cast us into the deep. Now, they weren't saying, don't cast us into the water. They weren't, ca- they weren't saying, don't cast us into the actual, uh, into the sea. They were saying, don't cast us down into hell. Because once they were in hell, they were locked up in chains and the only time they'd be released was right in the end before their judgment would come. So what was Jesus doing in the belly of the earth for three days? What was Jesus doing in hell for three days? I'll tell you what he was doing. Just what Peter said he was doing. He was preaching. You know what he was doing? He was telling all those angels, all the ones that, were, that had done their very best to serve their master, to corrupt every man and woman and child on the earth so that he would not be born I'm here. I was born. You failed. And I've won. Your master tried to get me to sin and he couldn't do it. And you will be defeated. In a few days, this place will not hold me because death can't hold me. It has no power over me. In three days, I'll be out of this place. And the sentence will be passed upon you and upon your master. Satan was defeated by Jesus. Satan was the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve. That's one of the things that Jesus did in hell. There is something else which I'll share with you next time. But I want you to take this away with you today. Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. And if God has fulfilled that promise, despite all the things that could have gone wrong all the way down, you know something? God can save you now. If you don't have Christ in your life, then I'll plead with you. There are only two places to go when you die. And that is either hell, where you will wait your final sentence and the fi- and hell is not the final place let me tell you that now a lot of people think that hell is the final resting place for all the uh, <coughs> unsaved and all the ungodly it's not <coughs> hell is a detention centre the final place is a lake where hell will be emptied into eventually you see <coughs> people who are kept in remand are kept there because they're suspected of, of doing a crime and they can't be let loose in society. That's what hell is. The difference is that God knows exactly what they've done. 
and the sentence has already been determined. It just hasn't been passed. How many people do we know that are there? Don't go there. You don't have to go there. You can make a choice. And the choice is an eternal choice that you can make. You can choose Christ and you can be found in Him. He will take you into Himself and you'll be safe. Or you can continue to choose your own path. You can continue to believe that you can do it your own way. But inevitably, what you're simply doing is choosing Satan as your master. You see, every rebellious being will be judged by God. The angels and all of men. So today, you are either in one of two positions before God. You are either under his condemnation or you are one of his children. Today, you can make that decision. You can make that choice. Please choose wisely because, as I said, God can keep his promises. He can keep his promises and make sure that they're kept for thousands of years and make sure that every word that he promises will be fulfilled by the end. And we have that great confidence. The reason I can preach every word out of this Bible is I trust his word. I trust him. But can you trust yourself? Can you tell me where you will be tomorrow? Can you tell me what you'll be doing a week from now? Can you tell me that you won't be run over by a car, that you won't get cancer, or that something else will happen to you and you will find yourself not here? We cannot determine today, let alone tomorrow. Choose wisely today. Today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come. And if tomorrow doesn't come for you, you will find an eternity of tomorrows, of regrets, so my challenge to you this morning is if you are a child of God, remember that Jesus has already won the victory. God has won the victory through Christ. That seed was delivered. The seed won. And we have won because of him. God bless you all. Thank you.